Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Alex and Mo podcast. And we are honored tonight to have none other than former APTA president and LSU professor, lifelong fan of LSU, Ms. Sharon Dunn. Welcome, Sharon, to the show. So earlier this Hello. season... I'm happy to be here. You happy to be here? She, she turned off the tiger. <laughs> so earlier this season, um, we had uh, Justin Moore, CEO of the APTA, and he is a lifelong R1 and a huge Iowa fan. So you decided to challenge him on a bet, which he unfortunately didn't get to see until late because he was traveling. So I'm going to ask you, between LSU basketball, LSU football, which would you prefer? I'm a huge football fan. Huge football I, I fan. love to watch football. Uh, basketball was really fun to watch. I, I don't know how Kim Mulkey uh, got a team out of all those superstars. It was It was really fun to watch their progress over the season and to create a team. Um, but hands down, I love Saturdays on my couch, yelling at the TV. I coach from the, <laughs> from the couch. I referee from the couch. And, and it it's not always just LSU football that I'm enthusiastic about. I just love to watch college football. So if LSU isn't playing, which team will you support? Um. Uh, college football. I love Penn State. Um, hmm. I go. I go way back in 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 watching the Big Ten, and I love Joe Paterno. There's a lot of tradition steeped in Penn State's football program. So if I'm if I don't want to watch a fun offense, I watch Penn State. <laughs> the, the three <laughs> three yards in a cloud of dust. Uh, <laughs> they, they've begun to throw the ball in the last couple of years, so they've been more fun to watch than they their old school teams were. So I love SEC football. I love Big Ten football. Um, the, the West Coast thinks they have it all until they end up playing an SEC team. Uh, anyway. it, it depends what division in the SEC you're playing, though. Um, it, it, it's two different uh, sides of the coin, literally and figuratively. Yeah, because – You've got the one side, you know, Alabama's division, and then that one seems, you know, Alabama runs away with it, depending what other team is small, may may compete, but Alabama typically runs away with it. But then you have Georgia, Florida, LSU in the other division. Am I am I right, Sharon? Is that is that true? The- and 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 nice. all three historically uh, strong. Football teams. George is the team to beat right now in the SEC. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like you know, college football, it, it kind of goes in in phases, right? So you've had your Alabama phase, then Clemson was there for uh, you know a little bit. Now Georgia's kind of finally gotten over that hump because they could get. They always dominated the division for the most part. They get to the SEC championship game. Alabama would just take care of them. And then they just couldn't get over that hump. Um, and then the last couple of seasons, obviously they've gone on to win it uh, back to back. And, you know, it's crazy the, the type of talent that these schools are able to get, um, you know, and, and it's, it's feast or famine because you got to be able to, to compete uh, with the, the likes of Nick Saban uh, and, the coach at Georgia was, I can't forget, remember Kirby his name. Smart. There we go, Kirby, Kirby Smart. Kirby is, Kirby is of the Nick Saban lineage. He was one of Nick Saban's uh, um, assistant coaches. And, you know, it's fun to see the uh, the student beat the sensei. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he, now, speaking of coaches, I mean, you guys over at, at LSU got a new coach not too long ago. Uh, and you being a original born raised Louisiana native uh you know the running joke at that early on in that in that tenure was Brian Kelly's accent at that basketball game when he <laughs> first got introduced uh to to be the LSU coach you know in front of LSU fans what were your <laughs> personal thoughts on that accent I was watching that ball game and I heard well, me and my family, and uh, at first I was offended because it was obviously not an authentic accent. But we in Louisiana had gotten used to Coach Ogeron, where no one else in the country understood what o-, o was saying, but everybody 
here at home, you know, we know that raspy Cajun accent. So we know when it's authentic and we know when it's not. And uh, yeah, Coach Kelly took a lot of heat across the country. And really, if, if you win games in Louisiana, nobody cares about your accent. No, so not he, at all. He had a great season last year. Um, won, won the uh, the SEC side, our side of our division. And everybody's pretty happy with him. And I I think he's he's created some discipline. Um, he's got a system in place, and you know, if you're not winning championships, you're you're in trouble in Louisiana. But he's signed a ten year deal, and it's going to be very expensive if if he's not winning for LSU to 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 shake that off. So, I think he's just as committed as 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 Louisiana people are to their football, to the alignment with scholarship and systems and winning. So. We're optimistic. Yeah, I don't care uh, what his accent is, as long as he wins, <laughs> well, fake or not. <laughs> you know, as a as a Florida State alumni, our season got off to an exciting game last year. Uh, it went into overtime and and all that fun stuff. So, uh, and then this season we kick off against you guys as well. So, uh, it'll definitely be an entertaining game because I, I do think you know LSU. Uh, is heading in the right direction to compete with your Georgias and your Alabamas and, you know, even your Floridas. But, you know, with me being again, a Florida state alumni, like Florida's against my religion. So we can't, <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about those, the, that team or those colors uh, in my household. But, uh, but anyway, oh, so are you guys, are you guys going to make, out. are you guys going to make a bet since I, I don't know. Me play? and Sharon may have to touch bases, come closer to, August, September, and maybe put a, a little friendly wager on the game. That sounds like fun. Um, now to the to the more, you know, important fun stuff. You know, obviously you uh, had the honor of representing our profession for our national uh, association. What was that experience like? It was like none I've ever had professionally, honestly. It was a huge honor. I felt it was a huge responsibility and obligation as well. And uh, I had some of my very best friendships come out of that service to the organization. Um, and nothing that was accomplished was done in isolation of other people on the team having a huge impact on any of the decision-making. So um, I, I, I learned what a strong team can do when there's a psychologically safe environment in which to have dissenting opinions, disagree, go hard at hard decisions, and then come to a result that everyone then backed. It was a very healthy board for several years, and we, we went hard at each other in the boardroom but once the decision was made, because everyone was heard and participated in the debate, we accepted what the decisions were on the backside. And we, we, we had a really great time in, in serving the association and making, I think, some very important decisions for the future of the organization. And I, I will never experience that again. I think there's something that happens when the right group of people are 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 in a in an opportunity like that it was almost magical many times and um i still keep in touch with with those board colleagues and um it, it's fun to reflect but i stepped way back after after my term was done for a couple of reasons one i was just sheerly exhausted uh it was it was a six-year six-year experience and and i I needed to step back because of that. Um, my mom's husband passed away at the end of 21 and she moved home to Shreveport. So uh, that was a, a turn of events. And honestly, my day job needed my attention. So I dove into the day job to, to take care of some things here at LSU. And uh, I, I am slowly going to ease back into a, a sideline role, a supportive role, whatever the leadership needs me to do. Um, I don't, I don't foresee a, an elected role for me, but I want to help people navigate the APTA so that APTA can continue to become a more inclusive organ organization. So that's, 
my 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 desire is to engage that way behind the scenes and assist people to get engaged. Well, but, first of all, sorry to hear about your um, your mom's uh, husband. Thank you. Uh, so last week we had uh, Dr. Jason Silvernail and he spoke a lot about leadership. You said this experience was none like no other, but you've been a lifelong um, in academia, right? Right. But sort of leading in academia, basically. <laughs> Have you? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm a dean, right? I'm the dean of the School of Allied Health Professions here at LSU Health Shreveport. So, of course, that is a leadership role. So did your day job prepare you, in a sense, for the position of being the APTA president? I would say the reverse is true, Monique. Actually, <laughs> serving the association uh -huh. a lot about leadership that, that I'm able to employ in the day job. Um, for example, um, we, we had some executive searches while I was on the board at APTA that prepared me to do to be on the receiving end of a search process for this executive position of dean. That was very instructive with me. Uh, everything I learned through ABTA about shared governance, how the board and house have shared decision making, and then in serving on the board as a teammate with ABTA staff to implement the, the work of the association, I've been able to employ here in, in the leadership of this school shared governance where I work closely with our faculty senate and faculty delegate assembly. Um, I'm not a top-down push push decisions down from the top kind of leader. I would rather engage the people whom the actions impact in the shared decision making. So I think I learned a lot through APTA that has benefited me in, in academic leadership, uh, as a dean anyway. That's good to hear because you hear a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot. It could be like the silent majority, silent minority, whatever you want to call it. But you do hear pushback saying that people don't get value being part of the APTAs. But you definitely got value out of the experience um, that you shared. Ah, you said dissenting views. Um, <laughs> what about dissenting members and comments from the peanut gallery about the APTA not doing anything for me or for my practice or whatever? How was that for you? Because I know as a leader, I could take stuff a little bit personally. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did take things personally, but I, you know, you never let them see you sweat. Uh, and and okay, know <laughs> when you when when you're leading an organization, it's not your role to to um, fight fire with fire. You're, it's your role to be a spokesperson for the people that you represent. So when I was taking things personally, I knew that it wasn't about me. It was about the ninety to a hundred thousand members that I, I was obligated to to represent professionally. So um, did APTA staff occasionally say, um, Dr. Dunn, you don't need to engage in this Twitter conversation? <laughs> yes, they did, because I would say the things that I wanted to tweet. <laughs> so I let off steam a little bit that way. And, and I would text what my make-believe tweet would be in response to some Twitter conversations. And we all got a good laugh and that that helped me, you know, diffuse a little bit in the heated conversations. But APTA is the organization that represents the profession. And if we're not all a part of it and being a part of the solution, it detracts from what APTA is able to do in representing us. Now, when people would have a dissenting opinion, I would listen because many times if it's consistent, there's a merit to the concerns. And, and we heard loud and clear um, early in my leadership that there was uh, barriers to engagement and participation. And, and we worked hard to reduce those barriers um, through the election process, through 
APTA Engage, creating touch points for more members to get involved. Um, it's not perfect. Any organization that has people in it, i.e. every organization, is not perfect because it's made up of people who are flawed and, and no one can point their finger at another person and say, I'm perfect and you're not. But the more voices that are heard and that are part of the organization, the more likely it is to represent the, the whole. So um, that was a roundabout way to say, yes, it bothered me, but I tried not to let it negatively impact the organization. When you look back at, at your, your tenure of leadership of the APTA, is there anything that you're most proud of? Um, and then on the flip side, is there anything that you regret or that you feel that you couldn't do to the level that you wish or hoped you would have been able to? Yeah, I think a couple of things that I'm proud of. I'm, I'm proud of the, the board culture that was established that was very strong. I'm proud of selecting a, a, a staff leader in Justin Moore who's got a motor like no one I've ever worked closely with like that. He's, his mind is always at that next thing. He's such an, an incredible strategic thinker. I'm, I'm proud of the board selecting him as the CEO. I'm proud of making that decision on the real estate. Um, none of us are real estate moguls, but we engaged a group of members who understood real estate and we listened to them. So we sold and bought and the value that of, of what we bought that is now the value of that building is twice what we spent on it. And, and we were clear that that wasn't going to be paid for in, in dues increases, that it was going to be paid for through the equity plus some rental opportunities in, in the building eventually. So those are, those are some, some big things that happened during, during um, that span of leadership. But I think the most proud I am is, is where the organization moved towards our efforts at, at, at diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And we're not done yet by any means, but there's a much more broad voice being heard at APTA who, who have impacted APTA. There's a lot more money in the PT fund to fund minority scholarships than where we began. And um, that, that ball is rolling. And that's probably what I'm most proud of. And, and that wasn't Sharon Dunn doing it. That was Sharon Dunn with a board that, that saw its importance and a lot of people through the Academy for uh, Physical Therapy um, aligned and joined with the vision that, that together we're a lot stronger than we are individually and, and apart from each other. Still a lot to do because only 3% of our profession uh, includes persons of color and we've got a long way to go, but we, we knocked down some barriers to participation and inclusion. And I, and I hope that continues to get better. Um, I can, I can definitely attest to that um, because uh, since I renewed my membership um, almost like eight years ago, it, it has, um, I've definitely seen some improvement um, in the numbers of attendees who are people of color and also in uh, leadership, because we always had representation um, matters. Your tenure was during some of the hardest political disputes in this country. And it seemed like we were going from one issue to the next. <laughs> you have some very strong shoulders and a broad back <laughs> because you hear that the APTA has no business engaging in this topic or that topic but people were calling for you guys, the board, uh, U.S. president, to make statements. So um, when put in a situation like that, do uh, you have to consult like with the board, the APT, in order to make a public statement? Like, could you sort of just walk us through the process or 
just be brief. We don't have to know the entire details. Yeah, actually, actually that it became so frequent, Monique, that we created a crisis communication plan that when, when there was not a hot button issue that we were being asked to, to respond to, we created a, a, an internal document that guided our communications on when the organization should and should not get engaged. Um, we, of course, first would consult with the policies and positions that the House had on any issues that were relevant to, to the topic of, of the day. But many times it was a conversation with the board. For instance, right at the beginning of COVID, there were, there were pleas from some members that we would make a statement to shut down physical therapy clinics across the country. Well, after the organization and the profession had worked so hard for 100 years to create us as an, essent as, as an essential benefit for payers, we, we didn't want to knee-jerk um, related to, to the pandemic. We wanted to see where physical therapists could use their clinical judgment about the cost-risk benefits to their patients. And so um, there, there wasn't a policy about a pandemic when we were in the beginning of the pandemic. So it required um, the board having a, a it was a two-hour conversation about protecting our patients, assuring that physical therapists use their clinical judgment, but, but also being proud that jurisdictions, state governments were allowing physical therapists to stay open at the time. So we had essentially arrived as an essential healthcare provider. And, and that's something that we could be very proud of. But sometimes it was gut Monique, it was it was weighing, you know, the issue, my heart, the the, you know, the the spirituality of of the of the topic, but also recognizing that APTA is a microcosm of our country, and we have people on both sides of every issue and everywhere in between. So being sensitive to the needs of all of our members on each side of of that those politically divisive issues and trying to, to, to assure that we represented the organization, the profession in the best light publicly. One of the things that bothers me though, and still today, when our members and non-members engage in uh, vicious attacks on each other and on the APTA publicly, what are, the public is watching us. <laughs> And when we use social media to have those conversations and and it it, it 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 concerns me that that those conversations are are you know they they feel good to us because we're engaged in a robust dialogue but when people look at us in fighting like that they're like well i don't really want to engage with that that type of profession if if they're going to be so petty on, on a public venue so i, I I, it's tempting to weigh in, but I really, I really would like people to engage in conversations like that via text and email, um, and, and or stop DMs. To get or attention, DMs. followers by being a, a cynic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that time period, um, you know, the last four to six years, uh, there was a change in in the the social environment uh, outside of our profession which I think kind of leaked into our profession uh, and, and the rest of society for that matter, as to people's thoughts, beliefs, and feeling some sort of empowerment to, to speak one way or the other, right? Mm -hmm. So it became something of, I can out, you know, speak you or, or put you down or, or whatever the case may be. It just became a battle, you know, to where mm -hmm. it was a battle on everything. If right. somebody said, uh, I'm wearing blue today, well, then somebody would say, well, no, blue means this. You can't <laughs> wear that. You know, it, it was just that that environment. <laughs> and, and we're kind of still in it today mm -hmm. to where you still have to kind of tread lightly because you have to be aware of, like you said, both sides of the equation and, and trying to keep all of that uh, 
in, in mind, you know, but, but to your point, I, I think our profession, uh, we are our biggest obstacles. Yeah. I, I feel, you know, we, yeah. you know, like you said, we we're, we're more concerned with, with fighting amongst ourselves, whether it's manual therapy or exercise or whatever topic in, in our profession you want to, to, to address as opposed to, to coming as a united front, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and trying to move to elevate our profession in the eyes of the consumer, in the eyes of our clients to say, Hey, this is an essential part, right? Because like you said, we were recognized as an essential healthcare provider. Right. If you were a physical therapist, you were allowed to continue to practice as home health therapists. Yeah. Mo and I, we were going into patients' homes and and you know dealing with patients who had actively contracted COVID and didn't know what was going on. So we were there. We were a part of it. Um, and then to kind of get into let you know the political stuff and it's hard. It's hard to to kind of filter that stuff out. Uh, but yeah, we got to do a better job. We we got to do a better job uh, of maneuvering that to to kind of paint that united front. It is. I mean, and we all learned this in PT school. When you when you have that license and you have that that responsibility to the public, the way you hold yourself out to the public matters. And and um, I, I believe the public watches and and they want their healthcare providers to to be um, um, credible and and to support each other and and be patient centric. So um, I always stood by anything that I said because my name is on it and I will have a conversation with you. I'll have a de debate with you. What really drove me crazy during that time was people would have a, a Twitter alias because they didn't want anybody to know who they were. Well, I don't have much for you if you're not going to stand by who what you're saying. Um, somebody called me out for having an opinion and they didn't even have, they were, were an alias account. <laughs> like, if you really want to talk, you're not gonna <laughs> let us know who you are. You know who I am. No, I really don't. I mean, yeah, and, and and those individuals, you know, they're looking for more of a reaction. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they want that viral moment, so to speak. You know, yeah. Um, and, and to your point, like it, it's hard to engage because, you know, when when you have a healthy debate, no matter what the the topic of discussion is, you're you're not necessarily looking to at least in my opinion, you're not looking to change the other person's point of view. You're just trying to educate them. You're trying to to point out some facts, some point of views that they just may have their blinders on that they can't necessarily see, right? So just so that you can expand your horizon, absorb a little bit more information and, and see how, if anything, it changes to your, to your um, thought process. But when you can't have that dialogue because the person is not coming from a a um, good place, a, a, yeah, and and just like just be who you are, right? Like stand by what you're gonna say. Yeah, we we can like you said, we can have a discussion all day. We <laughs> may never agree, but you know who I am. I know who yes. you are, and we can respect that. Correct. But but when you when you have people. And social media, you know, has created this environment where people are tough, right? The the your your thumbs become your your weapons. Yeah, uh, bullies. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. so because it's it's easy to hide behind a screen. It's easy to hide behind a name or on Twitter an egg avatar if you haven't <laughs> added anything, right? Yeah. Um, but healthy dialogue is good. We need healthy dialogue. We, you we know, do. And, you and thank, thank God that we live in a country where we have free speech and we can put it out there. And I, I'm all for free speech. So many times if I'm engaged in a Twitter conversation or a social media conversation, I'm, I'm responding more for the people who are lurking and learning from the conversation and not necessarily for the individual to change their mind. Because some people you just you're not gonna change their mind, but you got a lot of people who are just watching that conversation to learn 
And, and those, those are the people that, that are usually the target audience. And wouldn't it be great if people would encourage their patients to post on social media, the wonderful outcomes that they receive from our care. (laughs) It's funny because we had, we had Colleen uh, at the beginning of this season and, and that was her thing. She, you know, she's came on our show and said, look, you guys, you need to post, you need to show your wins. You know, you know, like going back to football, you know, Sunday mornings, you, 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 the social media teams for LSU, Florida State, whoever, they come up with a nice little video that recaps the nice win that they had the night before or the day before, right? We should do that. And you know we how should. many wins we would have every day? I mean, we if, if the number <laughs> of patients that physical therapists and physical therapists assistants see every day in their clinics, in their homes, and, and if those patients wanted to post a wonderful story about how their PT or PTA helped them, what, what an amazing public relations effort that would be. And, and we, we have so many wins every day. We're very lucky to, <laughs> to serve in this profession because we do change lives. And, and I, sometimes I think we lose sight of that, that that's, that's very much a privilege and an honor to, to, to be that instrumental in someone's most vulnerable time in their life. And, and they, they love us. Our net promoter score is out of the roof uh, compared to other, other professions. And our, our patients are our biggest advocates and, and PR, PR vehicles. Uh, most definitely they are, but uh, the infighting that we have within our profession also blocks the opportunities for collaboration with other healthcare professionals. Because I wouldn't want to work with a physician if I see him publicly bashing other um, physicians. A patient even mentioned to me today, man, you th- those doctors stick up for one another. I, I wanted to go through this doctor, but nobody else is going to think. But that's the thing. Everybody knows that lawyers will stick up for lawyers. Doctors will stick up for doctors. Physical therapists for physical therapists. Ah, oh no, they did the wrong thing. You should have been coming to me to do this because it's like, we have this scarcity mentality. And I think that it's like pervasive throughout our profession so that the people are arguing with one another to, to one up one another instead of, Hey, let's work together to show wins and help the profession. So we can have more collaboration with other people. The more you collaborate, the more we all win. Mm-hmm. The, the patient points. So that's just my take. Well, I, I think we, we fail to understand that there's enough to go around. Yeah. There's enough to go around. Man, right? it's, like it's a giant size pizza. It is. It is. You know, it, it almost feels like, you know, if you have a therapist or you have two, you know, I'll use outpatient because that's typically the, the environment where most of this competitiveness uh, happens. But if you got two local therapists, it's almost like I need to do something to kind of eliminate them, right? As opposed to say, hey, how can we work together to really expand our reach? Mm-hmm. Because not every, but not every patient is for you, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can still get them in good hands, then that's a win for everybody, you know? And, and that's that mentality of, like you said, it's that that scarcity, that scarcity mentality where it's like, you know, I got to get mine and I'm going to push you down to make sure that I get mine. Um, you know, and, and I think that, that that's a big problem. You know, we, we, we have people who get into the business side of physical therapy and all they start seeing is, you know, the dollars and cents and how can I get more and, and, and do something that's going to push this person further away from me. Um, when, in, when in reality, we can't touch every patient. Like we just don't, we don't have the reach. We, we, we probably 10% of the people in this country have, have experienced physical therapy and the other 90% is there for us to go and, and, and teach about what we can do. I I heard a statistic that actually Justin Moore shared at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, pre COVID somewhere between 10 and 15% of all physical therapy interactions was from a direct access, a self-referral, post-COVID, it's 25%. So during COVID, people began to access physical therapy, maybe through telehealth or other means, 
and the value that that they are receiving through direct access has been demonstrated to the patients. So now 25% of of interactions are self-referred to physical therapists. We got we got some work to do with our public uh, perception, but the public who has experienced physical therapy has a very high opinion of of the profession. And that that means that every encounter matters and and how we how we can continue to communicate and promote ourselves to the public is important uh, because it, it is a, a valuable profession for people to have. It, it creates longevity, it's prevention, it's safety in the home, it's um, staying healthy and out from under the knife and <laughs> chronic disease management. There's so much that we can offer to the public and, and, and we're, we're beginning to, to, to push the ball forward on public perception. And, and I'm thrilled that 25% of interactions are from direct access. I, I think the, the 40 plus year old uh, working mom who makes the healthcare decisions for her family ha- have figured it out. And, and they want a, a safe, non-invasive, non-pharmacologic answer for their family's well-being. And hey, that's us. It's us. And so we should be proud of is, us. Is the 40-year-old uh, female or, you know, the one running a household, is she the avatar for physical therapy? Is she, she is. Is, the is she our target market? But that's our target market. Okay. Because well, that's it, the decision maker. Yeah, you get in the door with that individual. And then it, it, it kind of trickles down from there. And, um, and they're they're shopping on the on the web and they're looking at social media. They're looking at who their friends saw through the comments um, on, on social media. And so we, we need to take our public representation up a notch. So will the, do you think the APTA will be able to present like brand kits to people that are struggling? Well, I'm I'm a member of the private practice and also home health. Um, Academy. So I, I know some of the resources that are available, but for those that are in, aren't in PPS or aren't members yet, can the APTA provide like free material or resources for members who, own, well, non-members who own clinics as well to be able to engage in improving our public um, image? Yeah. I, choose PT was choose PT. A, a direction that the organization went uh, with our public relations efforts because there, there was a lot of thought that went into that. One, it was the during the opioid, the height of the opioid epidemic right before COVID, it was, you have a choice. You can take a passive approach with narcotics and opioids, or you can take a more active role in your health and well-being, and you can choose physical therapy and and by choose we meant direct access so i'm not sure whether choose pt moved the needle on that um it it certainly could have but it doesn't just have to be related to opioids it could be choose pt for your early osteoarthritis because we can prolong and prevent the need for an early total joint replacement Choose PT as a first line of defense uh, against uh, immobility and deconditioning. We can put you on a prescribed exercise program to keep you moving. Choose PT for balance impairment. Um, there, there, there's a lot on APTA's website that is free that's not behind the paywall. Um, that consumer survey that I was referencing was a five-year follow-up to the first one that was done in 2016. And that's freely available on APTA's website, the consumer survey information, where where the the people who have had exposure to PT have a, a heightened awareness of our value and would pursue a physical therapist as a first line of defense against aches and pains. And and that was not the case in 2016. So. We've, we've made some progress in five years, and, and there's there's a lot more progress to make, of course. But, yeah, Monique, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Is more people need to be able to, to, to communicate to their communities with a consistent message. Yeah. We need, we need a 
we need that one big voice to be like, this is what we do. When mm -hmm. they think of PT, they know what we do. Mm -hmm. Not ask me every time I go in, are you the nurse or are you going <laughs> to give me a massage? I don't know if Alex gets that, but. <laughs> I, I, I do. I, I definitely get, are you the nurse a lot? Or, hey, mom, the nurse is here. And I'm like, no, physical therapist. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, another topic that, that seems to have been around and, and kind of brings a lot of, you know, these differing opinions is when the decision was made obviously prior to, to you being there, uh, about changing to a doctor, a doctorate profession. <sighs> what, what, ha, what are your thoughts? And, and obviously you being in that leadership role, how do you feel that that work didn't work? It's kind of works. Like what are your thoughts on our profession moving to the doctoring and how that's impact us both from the professional side and then the consumer side? I, I believe that we, being an academic, um, when I was in school, I, I graduated with a bachelor's degree. So I came into my academic program with two years of undergraduate that was mainly the, the, the what you needed for a baccalaureate degree in Louisiana, the English, the math, and, and the prereqs to get into PT school. And man, they hammered us in those two years in physical therapy school. So the argument to move towards a master's was we're going to grant you the degree that you you have already spent the time in getting in your in your bachelor's degree. So it's a more appropriate degree for the amount of time you've spent. Um, but the profession evolved a lot over that 20 years between when the master's degree was the degree of choice to the doctoral degree um, and to meet the public expectations for what we had had gained through the legislative battles for direct access, for example, we're, we're responsible for screening and, and diagnosis now. And that level of expectation that the public has, if we are a first choice option, is that we are going to pick up on things that are beyond our scope of practice. So that requires additional time and training in the academic um, preparation. So, so I believe we're right. Um, we're aligned with what the public expectation should be for our profession. I'm not sure everyone practices at that level of expectation. And, and that's a little disconcerting to me occasionally that people don't want the, the obligation for direct access because they don't want the responsibility of diagnosing. Well, you have it because you are a PT and, and you're obligated uh, by your license to assume the responsibility for that patient's physical therapy care under your direction. So whether you want it or not, you have it and, and the public should have an expectation that you 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 take care of their physical therapy needs, and I believe that's a, a doctoral level uh, accomplishment. Did it have some unintended consequences? Yes, I, I believe that that there the additional year of indebtedness of of additional schooling. And then the, the payment for our services didn't keep up with what that that level of care provides for the public is a challenge. And, and I didn't finish your question a while ago, Alex. You asked me if there was something that I regretted. It, the payment is, is what I regret following my, my term of, of office as president. We had a payment proposal before AMA that would have changed the way we were paid from a 15-minute procedure-based incremental payment to a either a per-visit per or an episodic payment system. And it, it came under a lot of scrutiny and, and challenges um, from within the profession and, and within other professions that use those codes. And, and we didn't push it through. I, I don't think we would have ever gotten it to succeed with the amount of in infighting there was around 
where we were going with it, but it deserves a, another shot at, at, at an effort to, to change the way we're paid to, to place a value on what our diagnostic skills are and place a value on the spectrum of, of, of acuity that we see as physical therapists. We go from the very, very, very sick that you guys are seeing in the home environment and many people are seeing in the, in the outpatient environment um, to, to very high-end, high-level athletic people that are, we're, we're working on performance enhancement with. So we, we need a payment system that values the breadth and depth of, of who we are as physical therapists. So I regret not pushing that forward. Um, and, and I believe we need to continue to pursue how we're valued by third-party payers and the public. Um, so that that's my one regret that we didn't we didn't keep that fight going, um, or or to go back to the table with a different different approach. Now the, the the proposal that we had before AMA, it was a evaluation and management type coding uh, effort. The primary care physicians are now being paid by E&M, Evaluation and Management Codes. So we, we should we should go back and say, hey, we want to do what primary care is doing, but but for the physical physical medicine rehabilitation and, and physical therapist, occupational therapist coding. Um, so, and so I don't know if I answered your question because I went around grandma's house to get there. Um, <laughs> no, you definitely did. And, I, and, and that last statement that you said I get, I, goes to back to my original question, right, about the doctoring profession. If we are going to practice at the highest level uh, that our license and our degrees allow us to, we need to be able to do that to then be able to go to the table and say, hey, if primary care is being uh, compensated in this manner and we practice in a very similar manner, then we should be able to, you know, to, to, to try to make that argument. But if we are going to say, no, I don't want to be at that level. I'm just going to stay down here because it's a little easier Then the third party payers are going to say like, you don't want to do the extra work or take on the extra responsibility. So then we're just going to keep you where you are. Um, the, the other thing that I think to point about, being in the right place as far as, as our profession is I feel like the younger uh, clinicians, the, the up and coming clinicians have taken this push to start and do their own thing. Right. I, I feel like before, even when I was in, you know, coming out of PT school and it's going on 15 years now, since I finished a uh, PT school, it was, you graduate, you go work for somebody for, X amount of years until you feel like, you know, just enough to maybe go off and do it on your own or, <laughs> or you just stay a staff PT because you, you're, you're comfortable with that. <clears throat> and, and I feel like a lot of the, the, the up and coming younger therapists, we've had some of them on our, on our show. They're like, you know what? I don't need all that. No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blaze my own trail. I'm a doctor of physical therapy. Yes. I'm going to practice at this level. And then I'm going to command what I'm going to command, right? So people look at them like, you're charging $150, $175 for a session. Well, yeah, you know, they're practicing at that level. And ultimately, it's to the consumer to decide if it's worth it to them or not, right? But we have our own people like, you can't charge $175. Why not? Why not? Why That's not? My, my thought exactly, Alex. No. And, and I couldn't be more thrilled that when I see... Um, early career physical therapists go out and strike, blaze a new trail um, because that's why we work so hard to get direct access. That's why we've worked so hard to remove the barriers to, to our ability to interact with the public and, and to heighten the academic uh, expectations for the profession so that people who graduate with that degree and get that license can go and blaze their own trail. There's no longer somebody standing there waiting to take your ticket. You have earned it and, and run, you know, the, the rest of us standing there with the sledgehammer in our hand with the rubble around the feet but from the walls that we busted. The, these new kids are coming in to occupy the land and they should. 
Uh, that's that's why they've 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 earned the opportunity, the obligation, and responsibilities to do it. And I'm thrilled that new models are being developed and 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 direct to consumer, direct to employer, and and we are worth that and more. So I I, I love that. And and I one more thing is a different kind of person is attracted to earning a doctoral degree, and that that the 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 people who are attracted to our profession now have an independent spirit and go for uh, it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I want to touch back on something that you mentioned about the proposed uh, payment plan. Because in Home Health, we build per episode. I thought the same or, thing. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> or about or episode of care. And, you know, you go in, you treat the patient, the patient does what they need to do, and you document and you leave. And I'm sorry to say, but home health setting is one of the most highest. Well, I think it's probably one of the most highest paid that I've worked in setting that I've worked in. So it it works. I don't know why people were fighting against that versus the minutes. It's ridiculous. So um, I have a colleague who does outpatient at home, the part B, and they still have to build the the per unit thing and i'm like to me it doesn't really make the best economic sense so that's why i stick with the traditional um home care because as a business you make more money doing the per episode or, or per visit so i hope they revisit it yeah <laughs> and with the bundle payment thing that's coming out it's probably no best interest to negotiate the primary care model because nurse practitioners are benefiting from it, so are PAs. We have gone to school. We know what we need to do. We just have to practice at the top of our license and bill accordingly. And and as as we evolve how we practice, we can evolve how we're paid. As Alex said, um, the payers have to come to the table. The coding that we use has to change and um i i believe we bring great value so when pts are participating in episodic bundled or even um alternative payment models uh, accountable care organizations we we save money um so like a hospital gets paid a drg a diagnostic related lump sum the quicker that patient gets out of the hospital, the more money the hospital gets to keep. Well, physical therapists are a great value at helping progress people to where they're ready to go home. Same for in the home health setting, same for inpatient rehab. We bring great value to, to the healthcare industry. We don't need to continue to sell ourselves short for that value that we bring. And, and I, I I don't think APTA is going to sit on the, the payment reform equation much longer. Uh, I charged the House and the board as I left office in my last presidential message with this. This is one my one regret. And as we pass this baton of progress, we learned a lot from that first experience. It, it, it's not a failure uh, if you go back after you've learned. It's a failure if you quit. So I don't believe it has to be a failure. I believe we can go back to the table, use everything that we learned and put together another proposal. I and agree. I, I definitely I, agree. I would love to be a part of that effort. <laughs> well, well, you said you were going to inch back in. Come on. She's going to ease her way, gonna ease her way <laughs> back into it, which, which kind of leads me to, to one of my, my next questions as we get close to, to wrapping up with you is like, what where would you like to see our profession in the next five years like what would be the 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 best case scenario um for for our profession in the next five years with, with the experience that you've had knowing how things work being in those meetings in those debates um because i i i think that's a unique uh experience right because 
we sit here and we talk and, and we think what well, we know what's going on. Like, you know what's going on. You've been in those rooms. Um, so, yeah, like, what, what, what do you think happens? What would you like to see happen? We, we bring great value to the front lines of care. Um, early in an episode of pain, if it's musculoskeletal, um, after, after big traumas, it, we, we fit in so many places along the continuum of care. But I think our, our most valuable place to be is, is probably co-located with primary care physicians or nurse practitioners or PAs in a primary care setting in a rural community. The sick people need to see the physician or the PA or the nurse practitioner. I mean, those people with uh, brittle diabetes who, who need their medicine managed, those people with high blood pressure who need medical management. 50% of the people who access primary care in rural communities have aches and pains. The other 50% are sick. So if you're sick, see the physician. If you hurt, see the physical therapist. And that would reduce the cost of care tremendously. They're not going for an image. They're not going for a narcotic. They're not going for a surgery. They're first seeing a physical therapist who can probably manage their first bit of pain and prevent and, and return them to function, return them to work, return them to their lifestyle. I would love to see more physical therapists co-located with primary care physicians. I didn't say owned by, I didn't say subsumed by, co-located with in partnerships to, to take care of communities. And, and partnerships means an equal risk reward in, in, in what they're doing in a, in a business model. Um, I, I would love to see more people engaged in practice that way. Um, but I also love what these early career physical therapists are doing. They're just going out and, and, and creating their market. And because there's plenty of it, as you already said, Alex, there's not just a, a small pie that we're infighting to get our piece of the pie. What, what is available to us is outside the pie. <laughs> the people who have never accessed a physical therapist. Well, I think we, we might have a, a A&M uh, future business endeavor. There. Yeah, I, I know. I was like, rural. I, I, I'm already seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm befriending a lot of nurse practitioners who are starting their own practice. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows? There so, you go. Start that business, Monique. Yes, partnerships, partnerships. That's how it and works. Then, you know, hire me when I retire from here to practice in that environment. I would love that. Yeah. Touch points in a rural rural USA. Man, and they will bring you apples and strawberry and pumpkin, <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs> I, like you you could be we could do the PT version. You ever seen uh that show? I think it's on National Geographic, uh the amazing Dr. Pole, the veterinarian. Yeah. And he's just out in the middle of I think he's like in Kentucky or wherever he's at. Like just do something like that. Just go yeah. around making house calls and <laughs> and, and, and fixing you know, aches and pains and get them back out there. But yeah, it, 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 it's, I, I, I like the thought quite honestly, because the way that medicine is, is changing in this country, um, it, it's more about meeting people where they are, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, building these locations and having them come to you. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, which is what historically has happened uh, in medicine, right? Like if you're sick, you got to go see the doctor, you got to go to this place, you got to make this appointment. And with technology and with everything going on, like it's now making it easier for it to come to them. Yes. Um, and, and if you can meet them there and, and provide that need, fix their problems, then then we, we have a, a legitimate shot, you know, and, mm -hmm. and you know, as different practitioners gain this access your nurse practitioners your pas now have more access more for lack of a better word power to to meet these individuals we need to meet them there like you mm -hmm. said we need to be mm -hmm. right there with them um to to be able to 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 provide that need and, and really fulfill it mm -hmm. um because i think if you do that then they start talking and that's the they best will. They That's will. the best uh, marketing that we could ever do, right? Mm -hmm. It's just let them talk about their experience uh, and, and they'll come. 
They will. They will. Well, Sharon, thank you so much. This was an awesome, awesome time and, and very insightful stuff um, that, that we got to hear from you today. And hopefully everybody that's watching will, will take, you know, just as much as I think Mo and, and I did from, from this conversation with you. Uh, also, thank you very much for what you've done uh, for our profession um, and, and in your time in leadership, because it, it was a time, a tough time. It was a tough time. And, and I don't think that it was a time that you, that there was a blueprint for you had to, you had to take on so many different challenges uh, <laughs> you know, within the profession, outside the profession. Um, and, and I think that, that, that you, you got the ship heading you, in the you right direction. You braved it well. You braved it well. Kept it, well, kept it going you. in the right direction. And, and, and now we're, we're, you know, making our way to calmer, calmer waters, but still battling some of those storms out there. So thank you so much. We really do appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And, and thank you, Monique. I, I was, I was honored to, to work, to, to be with y'all tonight. And I, none of that happened in, in, in isolation. All, all of that, that work was attributed to a huge team and a huge tribe, including you guys, sharing positive news about the organization and the profession. So I, I right back at y'all. Thank you for what you're doing to share wonderful news about our profession and, and what you're doing every day in home care. Uh, y'all are the true heroes. So thank you. <laughs> you're Yo, quite welcome. You're quite welcome. And to all you guys, follow, like us, social media, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you guys for joining us for yet another episode. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody.